Chapter Eleven of The Last Egyptian. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ian Stewart, Rosanna, Victoria, Australia. The Last Egyptian by L. Frank Baum. Chapter Eleven chapter eleven setting the snares kara also dreamed the girl's eyes haunted him he saw her bright eager glance her appealing smile the graceful pose of her beautiful head wherever he might chance to look and he cursed the persistent vision and tried to exorcise it well knowing it might lead to his undoing the egyptian's present establishment consisted of a handsome villa on the shubra road which at one time had been owned by a high Turkish official. It was splendidly furnished, including many modern conveniences, and had a pretty garden in the court that led from the master's quarters to the harem. Tadros, the dragoman, proudly boasted to himself, he dared not confide in others, that the furnishing of this villa had enabled him to acquire a snug fortune. Kara allowed him a free hand, and much gold refused to pass through the dragoman's fingers. Tadros had ceased to bemoan the loss of his beloved tourists by this time. Even a dozen profligate Americans could not enrich him as his own countryman was doing, and the end was not yet. A few days after the reception, Kara lunched at the Lotus Club, and met there Lord Consinor. Later the prince played a game of écarte with Colonel Varen, of the Cadivial army and lost a large sum. Consinor watched the game with interest, and after the colonel had retired, proposed to take a hand with the Egyptian himself. To this Kara politely assented. He was a careless player and displayed little judgment. The result was that he lost again, and Consinor found himself the richer by a hundred pounds. The prince laughed good humouredly and apologised for his poor playing. The next time you favour me with a game, said he, I will try to do better. Consinor smiled grimly. To meet so wealthy and indifferent a victim was indeed rare good luck. He promised himself to fleece the inexperienced Egyptian with exceptional pleasure. The Lotus Club was then, as now, the daily resort of the most prominent and, at the same time, the fastest set in Cairo. Both Roan and Consinor had been posted for membership although the former seldom visited the place until after midnight, and then only to sup or indulge in a bottle of wine when there was nothing more amusing to do. It appeared that Lord Roan was conducting himself with exceptional caution since his arrival in Cairo. His official duties were light, and he passed most of his days at the rooms in the Savoy, where his party was temporarily located until a suitable house could be secured and fitted up. He left Aneth much alone in the evenings, however, and the girl was forced to content herself with the gaieties of the fashionable hotel life, and the companionship of those few acquaintances who called upon her. As for the Viscount, he was now, as always, quite outside the family circle, and while he seemed attentive to his desk at the Department of Finance, the office hours were over at midday, and he was free to pass the afternoons and evenings at the club. The Viscountess remained languidly helpless, and clung to her own apartment, where she kept a couple of Arab servants busy waiting upon her. Consinor had told Aneth that he would not touch a card while he remained in Egypt, 
but if he had ever had an idea of keeping his word the resolution soon vanished he found kara irresistible sometimes to be sure the prince had luck and won but in that event it was his custom to double the stakes indefinitely until his opponent swept all his winnings away this reckless policy at first alarmed consinor who was accustomed to the cautious play of the london clubs but he observed that kara declined ever to rise from the table a winner no matter with whom he played his opponent was sure to profit in the end by the egyptian's peculiar methods for this reason no man was more popular at the club or more eagerly sought as a partner in a quiet game than prince kara whose wealth seemed enormous and inexhaustible and whose generosity was proverbial but the rich egyptian seemed to fancy consinor's society above all other and soon it came to be understood by the club's habitués that the two men preferred to play together and the viscount was universally envied as a most fortunate individual yet kara was occupying himself in other ways than card-playing during the weeks that followed the arrival of lord roane's party in egypt the victims of hatatcha's hatred had been delivered into his net and it was now necessary to spin his web so tightly about them that there could be no means of escape the oriental mind is intricate it seldom leads directly to a desired object or accomplishment but prefers to plot cunningly and with involute complexity one of lord roane's few responsibilities was to audit the claims against the egyptian government of certain british contractors who were engaged in repairing the rosetta barrage and the canals leading from it this barrage had originally been built in 1842, but was so badly done that important repairs had long been necessary. At one place a contractor named McFarland had agreed to build a stone embankment for two miles along the edge of the canal, to protect the country when the sluice gates of the dam were opened. This man found, when he began excavating, that at one time a stone embankment had actually been built in this same place though not high enough to be effective for which reason it had become covered with nile mud and its very existence forgotten finding that more than half of the work he had contracted to perform was already accomplished the astute macfarland kept his lucky discovery a secret and proceeded to complete the embankment then he presented his bill for the entire work to be audited by roane after which he intended to collect from the government the matter involved the theft of eighteen thousand pounds sterling kara whose well-paid spies were watching every official act of lord roane learned of the contractor's plot by means of its betrayal to one of his men by macfarland himself who in an unguarded moment when he was under the influence of drink confided his good fortune to his dear friend but it was evident that roane had no suspicion of the imposture and was likely to approve the fulfilment of the contract without hesitation here was just the opportunity that the egyptian had been seeking one morning tadros being fully instructed obtained a private interview with lord roane and confided to him his discovery of the clever plan of robbing the government which macfarland was contemplating roane was surprised but thanked the informer and promised to expose the swindle that my lord would be a foolish thing to do asserted the dragoman bluntly the egyptian government is getting rich and has ample money to pay for this contract and a dozen like it i assure you that no one is aware of this secret but ourselves very well are we fools my lord are there no commissions to be exacted to repay you for living in this country of the turks or me for keeping my ears open i do not want your thanks 
I want money. For a thousand pounds I will keep silent forever. For the rest you can arrange your own division with the contractor. Roan grew angry and indignant at once, asserting the dignity of his high office and blustering and threatening the dragoman for daring to so insult him. Tadros, however, was unimpressed. It is a mere matter of business, he suggested, when he was again allowed to proceed. I am myself an Egyptian, but the Egyptians do not rule Egypt, nor do I believe the English are here from entirely unselfish motives. To be frank, why should you or I endeavour to protect the stupid Turks who are being robbed right and left? In this affair there is no risk at all, for if Macfarlane's dishonesty is discovered, no one can properly accuse you of knowing the truth about the old embankment. Your inspector has gone there now. On his return he will say that the work is completed according to contract. You will approve the bill. Macfarlane will be paid, and I will then call upon you to collect my thousand pounds. Of your agreement with the contractor I wish to know nothing. So, then, the matter is settled. You can trust to my discretion, my lord. Then he went away, leaving Roan to consider the proposition. The old nobleman's career was punctured with such irregularities that the contemplation of this innocent-looking affair was in no way appalling to his moral sense. He merely pondered its safety, and decided the risk of exposure was small. Cairo was an extravagant city to live in, and his salary was too small to permit him to indulge in all the amusements he craved. The opportunity to acquire a snug amount was not to be despised, and, after all, the dragoman was correct in saying it would be folly not to take advantage of it. The next day Kara personally interviewed the contractor, telling him frankly that he was aware of all the details of the proposed swindle. Macfarland was frightened, and protested that he had no intention of collecting the bill he had presented. But the prince speedily reassured him. You must follow out your plan, said he. It is too late to withdraw now. When you go to Rhone, he will inform you that he has discovered the truth. You will then compromise with him, offering him one half of the entire sum you intend to steal, or a matter of nine thousand pounds. Give him more, if necessary. But remember that every piastre you allow Rhone, I will repay to you personally, if you can get my lord to sign a receipt to place in my hands. I see, said Macfarland, nodding wisely. You want to get him in your power. Precisely, and I am willing to pay well to do so. But when you expose him, you will also implicate me. I shall not expose him. It will merely be a weapon for me to hold over him, but one I shall never use. You can depend upon that. Take your eighteen thousand pounds and go to England, where it will enable you to live in peace and affluence. I will, said the contractor. I'll take the chances. There are none, returned Kara positively. So it was that Lord Roane bargained successfully with the contractor, and won for himself twelve of the eighteen thousand pounds for auditing the bill. The money was promptly paid by the government, and the division of spoils followed. Tadros called for his thousand pounds, and gave a receipt for it that would incriminate himself if he ever dared divulge the secret. Roane also gave a receipt to Macfarland, although reluctantly, and only when he found the matter could be arranged in no other way. This receipt passed into the hands of Kara. The contractor at once returned to England, and my lord secretly congratulated himself upon his good luck and began to enjoy his money. While this little comedy was being enacted, Kara found opportunity to call more than once upon Miss Aneth Consinor, who was charmed by his graceful speech and his exceptional knowledge of Egyptian history. Even Winston, 
whom Kara met sometimes in the young lady's reception room, could not deny the prince's claim to superior information concerning the ancients, and he listened as eagerly as Aneth to the man's interesting conversations, while impotently resenting the Egyptian's attention to the girl. Aneth, however, knowing no reason why she should not admire the handsome native, whose personal attractions were by no means small, loved to draw him into discussions on his favourite themes, and watch his dark glowing eyes light up as he explained the mysteries of the priestly rites of the early dynasties. Whatever might be the man's secret designs, he always treated the English girl with rare gentleness and courtesy, although the bluntness of his speech and the occasional indelicacy of his allusions betrayed the crudeness of his early training. Winston grew to dislike and even to fear Kara, for while he had nothing tangible with which to reproach the Egyptian, his experience of the native character led him to distrust the man intuitively. Kara doubtless felt this mistrust, for a coolness grew up between the two men that quickly destroyed their former friendship, and they soon came to mutually understand that they were rivals for Aneth's favour, and perhaps her affections. Neither, however, had any idea of withdrawing from the field, and Aneth distributed her favours equally between them, because she had no thought beyond her enjoyment of the society of the two men who had proved so especially agreeable. The girl had no chaperone, except a young English lady whose rooms adjoined her own, and with whom she had established a friendship. But Mrs. Everingham took a warm interest in the lonely girl, and was glad to accompany her in many an excursion from which Aneth would otherwise have been debarred. The visits to the museum with Winston were frequent and of absorbing interest, for the handsome young Egyptologist was a delightful guide. Following an afternoon examining the famous relics, they would repair to the terrace at Shepherd's for five o'clock tea, and here Kara frequently joined them. The prince had brought from Paris an automobile, together with a competent French chauffeur, and in this machine many pleasant excursions were made to the pyramids, Heliopolis, Saqqara, and Helwan, the Egyptian roads being almost perfection. Winston and Mrs. Everingham always joined these parties, and neither could fail to admit that Kara was a delightful host. End of chapter 11 Recording by Ian Stewart Rosanna, Victoria, Australia.